In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When we think about our lectionary readings, sometimes we scratch our heads and reread the readings of the day and say to ourselves, what on earth are we supposed to do with this? We sometimes compartmentalize our views into saying things like, these readings are only appropriate for Lent. Or, perhaps with certain texts that we call texts of terror, maybe these don't have a legitimate place in our weekly or daily readings of the Holy Scriptures. But when we look at these objectively, and when we dive slightly deeper than a surface-level reading, we can begin to come to an understanding that the first Christians may have thought and pondered when this was first written and read in liturgy. Unfortunately, that is where the easy part ends, and the difficult work of theological reflection begins. Now, all of you, whether you know this or not, all of you are theologians, people who hold discourse or who think and ponder on the salvific work and wonders of our blessed Lord. And if we are honest with ourselves, we learn, or perhaps it is better to say that we relearn or reaffirm that our Christian walk is not a walk in the park, but instead is a walk on battle lines as we advance in our Christian life and living. Let me explain using St. John the Baptist as our subject. For a, New for a New Testament persona, we know quite a bit about St. John. He is the cousin of Jesus, born of Elizabeth and Zechariah. He was a prophet, and from the various gospel accounts, was a zealot of sorts. We know zealots today. Some of them may be our neighbors or our co-workers. They're the ones who are always turning the conversation towards something like, politics or radio or newscasters or they're the ones who can name every single member of Congress both in our state legislature and in the US Congress but what set John apart was that he was a prophet who was there to prepare the way for the Messiah but he also preached a gospel if you will a gospel of repentance a gospel of preparing oneself for this coming Messiah and purging your life of sin and vice to make your heart ready for the king. And everyone loved John. That, that, that was part of the problem. John was preaching stuff that was hard, stuff that would make us think of ourselves as being in some sort of perpetual Lent. And the people loved it. That might actually say more about his hearers than it does about him. But John's message attracted the attention of all the people in government, including King Herod Antipas himself. And from what we know from today's gospel, Herod enjoyed John. He approved of John. He may not have understood anything that John said, but it was always great 
to go and hear him. If we transpose this to today, we might say that Herod invited him to the White House to preach or to say the prayer at his inauguration or to deliver an address at the National Day of Prayers breakfast. John was well-known, popular, and everyone knew that John spoke the truth. Truth. Speaking truth requires courage, and courage demands boldness. And boldness, if you are John the Baptist, means that you speak out against injustice or compromised living or a word that Christians like to throw around sometimes. It requires you to speak out about sin. And when you speak that way about sin or about faults or about failings or even about the stronghold that sin can bear on our lives, that's great and it's good and it's noble and it's praiseworthy. That is, until you start talking about people. But what happens when you speak the truth to those in power? Or you speak the truth about those in power? What happens when a Christian speaks up about things that are not right? Or what about when the church speaks up about policies that threaten the social cohesion of a nation to advocate for the poor? or the sick, or the social fabric that supposedly holds us together. The maxim of Lord Acton echoes again. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. When the church, or the preachers, or the self-appointed spokesman for a faction of the church says everything the government or the newspapers or the Facebook or movies and televisions want it to say? Or will we make worship like this into the next Broadway musical? Well, then in the eyes of the world, everything is fine. Everything is as it should be. But what happens when the church or her prophets speak out against government policies or what newspapers print that might be false or when Facebook demonizes scripture or when movies and televisions glorify violence and sex and hedonism? then all of a sudden, the church is an enemy. The church, the believers, the prophets, the preachers, the laity are intolerant, or they're fanatics, or they're fundamentalists of some sort. And 
they, the church, must be stopped. And in some places around the world, maybe they just need to be killed. St. John told King Herod that his marriage to Herodias was not lawful. It was not lawful in the eyes of God, nor was it lawful as the law of the land. One detail that is missing in the Gospels, but that Jewish historians like Josephus have helped us with, is that both Herod and Herodias supposedly divorced their own spouses in order to marry each other. Herod's wife was the daughter of King Eratas, and it was a political marriage, as was customary at the time. And historical records are slightly confused on this matter, but the long and the tall of it is that Herodias is too closely related to Herod to be married. They might even perhaps share a common grandfather. But notice who is more upset. It isn't Herod. It is his new wife. It is someone who has gained more power. Someone who has much to lose. Someone who has been handed all the riches of their nation, even though it is occupied by Rome. And Herod capitulates. Herod he who is king, maybe a puppet king, but a king nonetheless, gives into, well, he gives into his new wife, but that's not the problem. Herod gives into the illusion of power, the illusion of absolute authority. And that, beloved in Christ, is what the world does. The world doesn't want anyone or anything or any God challenging its authority. And that, my friends, is exactly what we are called to do. But the dangers that we as Christians face, and believe it or not, it's dangers for all of us. You as a laity, me as a priest, even David Reed as our bishop, is that we are to always advocate for the gospel. Not the gospel when it is convenient, or the gospel when it is safe, but the gospel first and foremost, always and only. We can't be Christians with some label attached, like liberal or conservative or fundamentalists. We are just Christians. Christians who understand and believe that the church has been right since the resurrection of our blessed Lord and Savior. And that it is he who fulfills the Hebrew scriptures. And that is, is he who is transforming us and the whole world into 
new creation. Those are radical ideas. And it is something that the world, the government of nations, and the prince of darkness all want to silence and to expunge. John the Baptist was martyred because he spoke the truth. St. John stood up to power and to injustice and atrocities that it promulgated. St. John was a prophet in the Old Testament tradition who, to now use a popular phrase, spoke truth to power. But there is something more that, un that until we come to grasp with that, that we will never be like John. And it has to do with ourselves placing ourselves into boxes or modes of living. It's this compartmentalizing ourselves through the day or the week or the month or the year. And we get caught up in this mindset that I am this person between these hours. And then we adopt this persona. Then, after work, let's say, we change masks and we can become another person. We might have a civic responsibility, such as being in a, an elected position or a government appointment. Or we might belong to a civic group like the Rotary Club or Lions Club. And once again, we put on a mask because it is who we need to be right then. But we are Christians. We are Christians first. We are Christians before we are anything else. We are buried with Christ in baptism, and our allegiance is to Christ and to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God first. So, what are we to do? Let me suggest a few things, and please know that I am suggesting these as, citizen, as a citizen of the United States. If we all lived somewhere else, it would most certainly be a different list. But first, we must remember the words of St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel always. Use words when necessary. We are to be ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors for the kingdom of God. And we do that by both what we may say, but most importantly, by what we do. Don't forget, St. John baptized his followers as a sign of repentance. We are to be baptized into this household or into this citizenship. And remember what St. James wrote. Faith without works is dead. 
Second, we must be bold for Christ. Every minute of every day is the right time to be a Christian. From waking to sleeping, while eating or taking leisure, we are always Christians. And please know that this is just my opinion. But this is where I think Christians have gone seriously wrong. We box ourselves up saying that we can't be a Christian right now, or we can't be a Christian and sit on this council, or we can't vote for Christian values because it might conflict with some secular policy. Once we take a stand for Christ, we must always be bold. We must always be courageous, be strong in the Lord. And be of good courage. Lastly, we must come to understand that our identity as Christians might threaten power. Maybe not here in Portland, Texas, but certainly in places like North Korea or Afghanistan or Somalia. In each of those places, there are Christians who die for their faith, who are literal martyrs for Christ, because it is against the law to even be a Christian. We sometimes talk about how persecuted we are here because we don't perhaps allow prayer in school. But with those same people who complain about that or other issues be willing to stand side by side with our Christian brothers and sisters in other countries? And would they be willing to place their neck on the chopping block? Just because it is not a reality here in these United States does not mean that it is not a reality in other places around the world. So, what to do now? In a few minutes, we will be praying together the Eucharistic prayer. And the form which we are using incorporates the prayers of the people into it. A custom of the ancient church. And we will pray for the heads of the ancient church. Some of the same churches that we read about in the New Testament that have never died out, like the church at Antioch or the church at Jerusalem. But those same churches are in grave danger today. Know that when we pray for our leaders and the nations of the world, it isn't just a nice platitude, but a deep longing, a groaning of the Spirit for God's justice to come through them. And we will also be praying for ourselves and our friends and our families that 
they and we may know Christ more fully and in knowing him more fully that we may unabashedly proclaim his gospel, his good news to not only the poor and the destitute, but also to those in power, authority, and leaders of our nation and the world. Remember these words of St. Paul to the church in Corinth. For the message or the logic of the cross is foolishness to the perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the source of ultimate and eternal life. Amen.